if we were living in the days of Gideon, if, or if Gideon's days were today, that's what Midian would have looked like. Big tanks, masses of people, all at the command of great rulers, intimidating, powerful, terrifying. If tanks and armies aren't your thing, but you still want to get a bit of a glimpse at the idea of strength and power, maybe you should go visit the air show. Who's been to the air show to see the jet fighters fly? That's power, isn't it? That kind of power that rumbles through your body and you sense that, you know, me against one of them is not going to come off very well. They put somewhat the fear of life and death into people's hands when they hear that kind of power and that kind of strength. So when God says to Midian, it's too many, it's too many, you will claim the victory for yourself if you have 32,000. He puts out a little test for Gideon to give to his men. If you're scared, go home. 22,000 men go home. Now you and I might be thinking, well done, good idea, avoid war, that's a good way to live. Smart, intelligent people, these people that have gone home. But I imagine the 10,000 that stayed didn't feel like that. Sookie, sookie, la-las. Oh, I'll tell you what, when this war's over, if I make it through, I'm going to their house next. Can't you imagine how angry they would have felt at these sooks that had gone off home, not protected their land, or 10,000 strong, burly men stayed behind, tough enough. Small chance of success, certain danger, I'm in. But God didn't see it that way. God doesn't look at people that, that leave with fear as a problem. He's not disappointed in them. It's interesting because you might think that God would be saying, well, live up to your calling. But in this story, God is showing us something about his character. And this is a, a common theme that we find through God, about God throughout all of history. And it's a common theme through Gideon. God chooses the least, the lowest, the most unlikely Jesus says, if you want to gain the whole world, you don't do it by tanks, jet fighters and armies. You have to lose your, lay down your life for God. If anyone wants to gain the world, they must lay down their life. Um, the Apostle Paul said, when I am weak, that's when I'm strong. Jesus talked about coming, those who want to be great must become the servant of of all. And then he talked about himself, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who became servant of all. This astounding strategy that God uses is not a strategy that we understand in human thinking. We don't get it. Why would God choose to use the small, the weak, the least, the lowest? Why doesn't he display his awesome power? We've all seen the stars and the planets, we've seen images of of them on Google or we know God is amazing. Why doesn't he dazzle us with his power? Why doesn't he use strong people to dazzle? Why didn't Jesus come with a horse and a scepter and a throne and an army? Why does God choose to use the least and the lowest, the weak? I reckon there are two reasons. There's probably lots of reasons, but after thinking about it this week, two have come to mind. One is that when human beings become powerful, they are nearly always become corrupt. You know that great phrase, with absolute power comes 
Absolute corruption. No, not that, not that phrase, but thanks for that. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. If you look at history, you can see the evidence. The more powerful a person is and the more enamoured they become with their power and themselves, the more corrupt they become. The more wicked the deeds are done, the more they treat others as if they are of no value whatsoever. We lose our sense of humanity when we become so powerful. We lose what it is to be human, to treat others with respect and with dignity. And in our country, even today, there is a challenge for us around the least and the lowest and the lost, disabled, refugees, the poor. And in our country, which is very powerful, very lucky, as Ryan said, we can tend to just enjoy our wealth and not take care of the lowest and, the least. and as we do, I think that shows the evidence of that corruption when we become enamoured with our own luxury, our own comfort, our own ability to have what we want. And as Christians, we must be aware that God, for our own good, calls us out of our weakness and our brokenness and partners with us into strength. Not only for that reason, that we become corrupt, but also because I think God's generous heart is to get alongside his people. He's not a God who wanted to set the world in motion and sit back and say, oh, let's see what happens, put his feet up on the ottoman, watch it, fast forward the scenes that were boring. That's not the kind of God he is. He wants to be part of our everyday. And he does that by turning up when things look like a small chance of success and certain death. Sometimes it's the 11th hour and sometimes it's only through the silver lining that we see the goodness of God. He doesn't always do what we want, but sometimes he does even more than what we can imagine. Too many soldiers, get rid of them all, down to 300. So God draws on a strategy of faith. He's calling people to rise up, to courageously believe that he's good for his word. But how was Gideon feeling when God stripped the army down to a small percentage of what it started out with? Was he feeling full of faith, energised, strong, ready to rumble? During the night, Judges 7 says, The Lord said to, God, to Gideon, Get up and go against the camp because I'm going to, sorry, the, against the camp of Midian because I'm going to give it into your hands. Listen to this. I love God about this. I love him about a lot of things. I love him about this. If you're afraid to attack, how generous is God? If you're afraid to attack, not because you're afraid. If you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura. Don't know, I think that's how we'll say his name today. And listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So Pura, his servant, went down to the outposts of his camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could be, no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling his friend his dream. 
I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can, mean, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites into the whole and sorry and the whole camp into his hands if you're afraid god says to gideon generously kindly not making him feel bad about it if you're afraid i've got a plan i love that when we on a journey of faith sometimes things look bleak but in the midst of that god meets us and encourages us and this is part of that story it looks bleak certain death Small chance of success. It looks bleak. Gideon believes he's going to his death when he goes to this war. And God says, come on, let me encourage you. Take your friend. Come listen to this prophetic dream. Old Testament's full of dreams that have meanings. And in this case, the meaning is interpreted that God has given Midian into the hands of Gideon. What I find interesting about this is that Gideon didn't go by himself into the Midianite camp. God said, take a mate with you when you go into this camp. Now, if they're thick as locusts, don't you think it would be safer? Just one guy sneaking into a camp, trying to keep stealth. Why does God send Gideon with his friend into this camp? Because he's Samwise. Well, maybe Tolkien was reading this story as part of his own story. It's a great point though, isn't it? God calls us to walk together. If you look at the Old Testament, most of the great heroes have great mates. Look at Moses and the great mate Joshua. And Joshua actually had a great mate Caleb as well. And together over those generations, they inherited the land just as God had promised. What about David? What was his great mate's name? Jonathan. Great mate, Jonathan. David surely would have been killed by Saul if it wasn't for Jonathan a couple of times protecting him and taking care of him. What about Jesus? What were some of his great mates? He had a couple. (laughs) God is cheating. (laughs) Thank you. Peter. Yeah, Peter. James and John are known as his inner, inner circle. Three great mates. Thank you. And, you know, so the... The reality is that we see in scripture, God sends mates together. When Jesus sent the disciples out to do ministry while he was on the earth, I don't know if you remember this story, he sent them out in twos. Go out, preach peace, preach the gospel of repentance and love, good news. Out they go in pairs. When the apostles went out years later, they were sent out in pairs. And to this day, a lot of mission organisations send people out in pairs. In this case... The fact that it wasn't Gideon's wife, I think, was important. He needed a mate, not a nag, or not that wives are always nags, can be sometimes, not someone who's going to be afraid and say it's too scary, it's too, too, too dangerous. He needed a mate. And together they go into the camp, and I've noticed two things. Now, hang on, Australians are good for mates, aren't we? That's one of the things we pride ourselves on, mateship. Look at the Anzacs, we're great mates. And they laid down their life for one another and supported one another. What about our footy teams? We've got great mates most of the time in footy teams until they change teams and then there's a lot of unhappiness. Mateship is a high priority in Australia. We talk about it. We identify it as one of our cultural realities. 
Do we do mateship in the church? I think sometimes talking about God and our faith is one of those things we don't do so easily outside of this space. It's all right in church. It's the place you do it. You have that conversation. You do God talk, small group, church. But what about in your everyday life? I mean, we can sometimes talk about our work, our family, our house renovations. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. But sometimes the spiritual stuff, the faith journey, the wrestles, the drawing near, the sense of God, we sometimes just keep that private. But if we do that, I think we run the risk of some of the great outcomes of having Christian mates. Three I picked up from Gideon. The first one was that because they were together, they were able to encourage each other. I mean, this is the experience where you really need somebody else to go, are we going to be right? Should we go in now? What do you think? Should we sneak? I'll go to that tree, then you meet me. You know, like they're working stuff. They actually need somebody to go, come on, keep going. Somebody to cheer them on as they go in, sneak in, find their way. Encouragement is a huge thing that we need within our Christian faith. And quite often, we don't do it enough. The the New Testament is full of um, uh, words to say we should be encouraging one another. All the epistles talk about encourage one another, speak to one another, spur one another on, speak the truth in love. These words are words that say get alongside each other and encourage. It's not easy. It's not easy sometimes, the faith journey the family journey, kids, work. It's not easy. We need encouragement to walk this walk, to take hold of it. Not only did they need each other for encouragement, but they needed a witness. You know like when you have a moment with God and you go, oh, that's amazing, but you were the only one there and you try and tell someone, you know that, you know, like, oh, you had to be there. It was amazing, but you had to be there. In this case... Pura was there with Gideon. He had to be there so that they could say to each other, did that really happen? Did you say, nah, was it? Yeah, I heard it too. Seriously, it was, that's what they said. There's this bearing of witness. And you know what? From that moment on, for the rest of their life, they would never forget that moment. Those moments where you share an experience of God's presence, they stay with you forever. They're the moments you return to. You're sitting on your veranda. I'm looking forward to this. In your rocking chair and you say, remember the time... Remember the time God turned up in that? Rah, rah, rah. Remember how God, yeah, did that really happen? Yeah, did, I was there with you, remember? And I've got, I'm putting it Rachel at the moment, I've got lots of experiences with Rachel in the very early years of our young adulthood where we've got, we go like, do you remember that? And they're astounding moments that bind us together. And sometimes they mean that we call each other higher. Hey, you know what God says. You know what he did. And we need those moments to call each other higher, to spare each other on, to fire, that was the last point, to fire each other up, to say, you can't back away, we've been there. We've seen God do stuff. Don't get comfy on your veranda yet. There's still more to do. So mates are really important. Okay, the final part of the story goes like this, Judges 7, 15. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up. The Lord has given Midian into your hands, dividing 300 men into three companies. He placed the trumpets and empty jars, sorry, he placed trumpets and empty jars into the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, 
He told them, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men that were with him reached the edge of camp at the beginning of the middle of watch, so about midnight, just after they'd changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and they broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets that they were blown. They shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah, towards Zerah, and as far as the border of Abel. And then the rest of the story goes on of how the, uh, the war ends. So here it is. Gideon has this moment. He sees and hears the presence of God. And what's his first response? The scripture says, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped God. He worshipped God. So did he get the band together or load some YouTube on his phone, crank it up, have a holy time? Did he sort of try and get in the zone, communicating? I don't think that's what worship means in this situation. In fact, I don't think it means that in every situation. Worship isn't just revving us up on a cold morning or taking a few moments to sing a couple of songs and enjoy a bit of a rah-rah while we love all of that. Worship in scripture is not just about music and joy and praise. It is also considered to be the moment that we lay it all down before God. The moment we say, I'm totally and utterly surrendered to you. In the New Testament, Graham, in Romans chapter 12, it says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That is your reasonable act of worship. Worship is about laying it all down and saying, whatever it is, God, it's in your hands. I am totally surrendered to you. And I think that's what Gideon did. I think he had that moment where he realized God is on my team and I need to cooperate with him and there's not a thing I can do but to lay down, lay it all down, totally surrender to him. And the rest is in his hands. Gideon had a moment. I think it's one of the most courageous moments. They're the life-changing moments. When you face storms, when you face tough times, when you face armies or family or life or work, when you're facing times that are difficult, and sometimes we want to work it all out ourselves, but the call in this passage is, For the man, the leader here, is to lay it down before God. Before he wins the victory, before he thinks he's got it all together, before he champions the team and rah-rahs them so that they're ready to run on the field, before any of that, he comes to the conclusion, this is all about God. And he lays it down. And that is a wrestle and a step of courage. And it doesn't happen in five minutes. Sometimes you've got to go there. You've got to be in the dark of the night before the storm, and meet with God. And I think Gideon did that. But he comes back and he's a different man. He's no longer downhearted. He's no longer worried. He is fired up and ready to rumble. So he comes into the camp. Come on! Everyone else is like, oh, not ready yet. It's 8 o'clock. Come on, let's go. It's time to go. We're going to go and beat Midian. And so he hands out trumpets 
He hands out lights in jugs and some of this stuff is kind of important. I wanted to pick up on a couple of these thoughts because they have symbolic meanings to them. I'm going to go real quick. Um, Steve is going to play the sound, I think, of trumpets of what is called... Oh, I didn't... Did I write it down, the name of the trumpet? The shofar, which is a ram's horn um, that is Israel's particular horn. God gave it to them and um, it has lots of symbolic meaning and they always blew it before wars. Um, Joshua blew it before the Jericho march. Um, Gideon blows it here. Um, And it's a symbol of Abraham and God right back at the covenant. You remember with Isaac... And the ram was caught in the thicket. And so instead of Isaac being sacrificed, the ram was sacrificed. And it was a symbol, a call to God to say, remember your covenant. You made a promise that you would be with us. So we're going to blow this and we're going to expect that you are rising up, God, to your covenant promise. So let's see if it works. Hopefully, we're hoping not to have video footage. So good, no footage. Just enjoy a bit of sound for a sec. in a Midianite camp and you're surrounded by 300 of these. They don't all sound that nice. Get on YouTube, have a listen. Some of them are pretty rank sounding. But it's loud and it's noisy and it generally would represent a leader of a squadron in front of, like would have a trumpet, not an individual for himself. And so the sound of 300 of these things going off makes Midian think that they're surrounded by this ginormous army of people ready to come. And I love that the shofar, not only is it a symbol of God's covenant, it's a symbol of repentance. They talk about it being the curve in the ram's horn is about turning our hearts back to God. So as Israel put their trust in God and they surround Midian, they're turning their hearts back to God. They're calling on the covenant of God and they're prepared to stake their faith in him alone. Um, In addition to that, they have their torches or fires inside jars of clay. And I think, I love this, because I think the Apostle Paul was thinking about this when he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He wrote this, For God said, let light shine in the darkness. He made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light and the knowledge of the glory of, of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. I reckon when the Apostle Paul was writing this under persecution, having had the most awful times in sharing the gospel, the image in his mind of jars of clay and this light within it was a Gideon image. He knew the battle's not his. 
There's a bigger story. God's in control. I've heard this story before and God is good for his word. So he talks about we carry within us, we are jars of claim, we carry within us the power, all-surpassing power that is from God and not from us. It's a great image and I would encourage you to remember that as you face your hard-pressed, perplexed, struggle times, that within you you carry the all-surpassing, all-surpassing power of God. Finally, they give a shout of victory, just as Joshua did. A shout of victory before they'd won the battle. Based on faith, they give a shout of victory, and as they shout for victory, Midian goes into chaos. All of the um, wickedness that they have sown returns to them in a sense. They're becoming in confusion and they war against each other, and the battle is won. When Jesus died on the cross, the very last thing that he did as he spoke before handing himself into God's hands was to shout a shout of victory. He shouted, finished! This job is done. This battle is won. Darkness no longer has power and each person can now receive new life, new hope, new joy and my Holy Spirit dwelling within them. It's a shout of victory that Jesus shouts on the cross. It's a shout of victory around eternal life, as Ryan mentioned this morning. There is no need for fear. There is no need for sorrow. And together we can stand and shout and worship in advance for what is coming, that God is our victory and our strength. Hope you enjoyed Gideon today. Hope you're inspired that God uses the little, the least and the lost. Small chance of success, certain danger. And God says... I can do this. Watch me. I've got this. Please stand as we close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the man Gideon who obediently followed you to protect his people. And there was no possible, no human possible way he could have had victory. And we see that as he rose in faith and as he put his trust in you, God, you rose to meet him. You encouraged him, you strengthened him. And in the end, you won the victory. You are good for your covenant. You are good for your word. And God, we carry within us your living presence. We thank you, God, that you dwell amongst us and the promises for Gideon are promises for us too. May we walk in faith. When things look like there's no chance of success, may we hold on tight to your promises and see your salvation. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may he make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he call you into greater adventures than you've been before. And may he meet you there every step of the way. And in the end, may he receive all the glory due to his name. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Amen.